Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to CWTG. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of CWTG. I'm glad to have you here, and uh, this this next very interesting episode, ladies and gentlemen, was uh, actually was brought to me by a, a family member and pastor, uh, Reverend Demetrius Greer, who uh, sent this to me, and I felt it was necessary, ladies and gentlemen, to give a a a, a detailed episode about how uh black people when they were traveling back during the um the uh 30s 40s 50s you know 60s when the uh slavery and, and jim crow and things like that were uh running amok in this country and some people say they still are they just got new names called the uh, penitentiary but anyway i digress i want to thank the uh, uh the pastor for uh passing this uh information and this story on to me uh reverend Greer also has a uh a podcast show that i would like for you guys to check it out and and, and follow and support him uh it's called the uh, uh looking forward and reaching back and uh uh the reverend uh, uh demetrius greer is a uh, a uh, uh, a minister and a uh, a pastor to this uh, uh channel um so, believe if you can do me a favor, go check him out. He has a, a wonderful, inspirational, and and um, spiritual guidance for you. He has uh, well over uh, 30, 35, or thirty six episodes that uh, will bring some um, light and healing and blessings uh, into your life. So, again, please go check him out. That's the uh, Reverend uh, Demetrius Greer. At looking forward and reaching back I thank him for this uh, next episode that I'm about to bring to you as you know ladies and gentlemen before I start any um, uh, episode we have to do our dirty laundry and keep it clean around here at the uh, studios of uh, chilling with Teddy G with the uh, copyright disclaimer the act of uh, 1976 under title 17 section 107 allowances is made for the fair use for the purpose such as criticism comment news reporting teaching scholarships and research fair use is permitted by the copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing nonprofit education or personal use tips the balance in the favor of fair use okay let's get right into this ladies and gentlemen this episode is going to be about uh uh, <clears throat> the Green Book. I know some of you uh, Mazungus may not be familiar with this, but a lot of my uh, uh, black listeners and um, melanated listeners are familiar with the use of the Green Book. Now, before uh, uh, legislative accomplishments like uh, from the uh, Civil Rights Movement, Black travelers in the uh, United States face major problem that's unknown to uh, white folks. And that can go either way because a lot of the issues, ladies and gentlemen, that we were having were with white folks or with Mazungus, as I actually like to call them, you know. Um, but yeah, we had issues with uh, white supremacy and had long sought to restrict the uh, uh, black mobility. 
and was uh, informally hostile to uh, black strangers, black travelers. And this is what brought about this creation of the uh, Green Book from um, uh, Victor Hugo Green. That's why it's called the Green Book. Uh, <clears throat> who was, I believe, a poster worker and uh, who did a lot of traveling himself. And so he started documenting uh, safe havens, as you will, places where you could go to uh, seek a safe refuge, like if you needed to uh, get off the road to sleep or you needed uh, a, a different type of amenities and uh, safe routes to travel. Well, that's what this uh, green book was all about. Let's listen to a few um, individuals who have used this green book and its strategies in order to be able to travel through these divided snakes. We always leave late at night so that we try to get to North Carolina um, just, just after dawn so that we could drive through most of the place, most of the South in the dark, because uh, my father felt that was safer. Three or four times a year, I would go back and forth to Georgia. But I knew I wasn't supposed to stop at night to buy any gas or do anything, not even to use the bathroom. If you had to relieve yourself, there was always some kind of can in the back of the car. And mostly for the adults, because the, with the children, they just open both of the car doors and the kids stood between the car doors and used the potty. Washcloths, some wet, wrapped up in wax paper. I don't recall that we even, uh, in my early travels that we even had, we didn't have any plastic bags. You know, it was wrapped up in wax paper because we'd have to use the bathroom on the side of the road. You tried to get everything you needed when it was daylight. It, that included gas. If you gave them a 20 to buy gas, you didn't get any change back. And if you said anything, they might cause the law or hit you upside the head. Wasn't no change. You didn't get no change. So what you tried to do is buy what little gas with the small, smallest money you had. We would look at green books and we would look at things to sort of help us figure out where we could go. But the one thing I remember more consistently was that my father believed that the only place you bought gasoline from was from Esso, which is now Exxon. He would drive around, almost running out of gas, passing shell stations until he could get to the Esso. And finally I asked him, I said, okay, help me understand this loyalty. And his argument was that in the 30s and 40s, when he was a kid going to visit his father's family, Esso was the only gas station that would allow black people the dignity of using the toilet on an equal terms as white visitors. And so the notion of unpredictability of racism, that it would tap you on your shoulder at moments you didn't expect, was really the key. And I think that the Green Book actually gave you that confidence that you wouldn't be tapped on the shoulder unexpectedly. And if you could live your life knowing that racism was there, but knowing when you had to confront it, my goodness, that was an amazing gift. You didn't stop. Now, <clears throat> the hashtag, ladies and gentlemen, of... Uh... Uh, DWB, everybody thinks that it was coined by uh, Martin Lawrence in uh, one of his movies that he made. But believe me when I tell you, driving while black was a phrase that was out 
many years ago, and that was the whole purpose for the uh, Green Book. It was the uh, Black Traveler's Guide. If you were doing any traveling, ladies and gentlemen, that was a necessity, <clears throat> just as important as having a food, um, water, and gas. In fact, a lot of people back then, they called it the... Uh, the uh, Black uh, Traveler's Bible. Because you could find a lot of the uh, important answers, not all, but you could find a lot of the important answers that you needed to questions that were important to your survival while you were traveling. And um, that book was the Bible. Uh, and the... Uh, uh, you have no idea how the Green Book helped uh, uh, Black Americans, uh, tourists, uh, navigate uh, through the uh, segregated nation, especially the segregated South. I don't have to say too much about that because I'm sure all of y'all are aware of what was going on back then. So hashtag uh, driving while black, ladies and gentlemen, is a term that's been used since the uh, 20s and 30s and 40s, 50s and so on and so forth. You know, and that's what you had to uh, realize, and that's what you, and the Green Book is what you had to rely on if you wanted to get to from point A to point B without being beaten, without being uh, stopped by the police and uh, arrested, or even more, ladies and gentlemen, just coming up missing in action and never seen from again. I mean, it had listings for uh, uh, hotels and, and, and restaurants and other businesses that opened to, uh, black Americans. Uh, this was a guy that was invaluable, especially uh, for the Jim Crow era and the travelers that was uh, uh, going back and forth then. I ain't food. You carried your food for, me, for many years. Later, things became a little bit different that you could stop and buy some food. But before 1960, at nighttime, you didn't stop to buy no food. Well, when we would go visit like our aunts in Georgia, or if we were going to Chicago, you know, my mother, um, she would fry chicken, boil eggs. You always, that was something that, you know, you always traveled with. And we had the tin, tin bucket with ice in it, with uh, newspapers around it and everything for the trunk of the car to put milk in and, and pop and deviled eggs. And our standard fare was fried chicken and, and, and pound cake. I guess because these, these items didn't uh, kept longer. And we took brown bags. You, you heard your older people talk about brown bags? Greasy brown bags, fried chicken was a number one priority. Fried chicken and pork chops. That's what you went up and down the road with. And some water. We told people carrying water now. We carried water then in uh, quart jars, mason jars, and whatever. You know, you packed your food, threw it in the window because you didn't have a coolers in those days. So threw it in the back window to keep it warm. And uh, we'd have our food on the side of the road. And if there were restaurants along the way, we could not use them as well. And so, but there were snack machines at each one of these places, so we'd end up with some landscape practice. Chips are peanuts or something like that, that was going to be our source of nourishment on the road if we didn't pack up something and take it with us. 
going home, my mother's always made sure we had some food when we got on the road, so it was not that much of a problem. But I can remember being excited about going. You know, I didn't realize all what they had to go through in order for us to get to Chicago or Georgia. Mother always did the reading. She was the navigator. She would always say, well, let's see, we're getting to whatever town. And then Miss So-and-So's got a restaurant or Miss So-and-So will get there in time to get some of her food. Uh, we knew what the conditions were and knew that there were certain places you just didn't bother to try to enter. So maybe that uh, eliminated any problems along the way. So if we got to a place where there were white and black signs, we knew, hey, you go into place marked uh, well, Negro, uh, uh, covered at that time. And so those were, were really the experiences. Uh, it was uh, not so much. I can remember traveling to California. My dad would put his uniform, his military uniform, we were hanging in the back window. And I'd say, Dad, why do you hang your uniform in the back window? And he'd tell me, because we get stopped by the police, the police would know he was a serviceman, and maybe they would offer him some courtesy. When we did travel with a group, you know, of guys in the Navy, then there were, there were no problems. Uh, much, much different. Disappointing, in a, in a sense, was that we uh, had to go through those experiences even though I was, uh, you know, in the Navy and had been in several years by that time. My father was a Korean War veteran, uh, soon to be that before Vietnam. So he was a soon to be a Vietnam veteran. He was a military man, heart and soul. And he gave his whole heart <clears throat> and soul to this country. But he had to do things like that just to be somewhat deemed as an equal or something less than legal. I thought it was really unfair that he would have to do that. By being a military kid and my father being in the military, we traveled in and out of segregation. I can remember I started school in Alameda, California. Of course, there was no segregation in 1955 in Alameda, California. When my mother had my next brother, she went back home to Columbus, Georgia. Well, guess what? I'm in a segregated school. What happened to all my white friends? They just all disappeared. It was awfully frustrating, especially, you know, a young sailor, maybe guy with a wife and young children. When I go. Now, my father was in the Navy as well and did this type of traveling, but this was before that I was born, so I didn't go through the struggles that he went through while he was in his uh military career but i can remember that green book and i can remember us traveling and using that green book i remember reading it also well like it was yesterday because uh my uh uh parents made it a a particular point that we went and seen <clears throat> family members excuse me <clears throat> uh on both sides of the family, my my uh, parents, uh, 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 my mother's uh, side of the family up north, and uh, my father's uh, family, which was uh, mostly down south, but he did have some uh, up north, like in upper uh, New York and things like that. But that book was essential, and it was something that was used by many 
uh, black families during the uh, Jim Crow uh, era. Now, right before I get back to this uh, uh, brother that was uh, speaking, I can remember that, uh, uh, I mean, this article that I was reading in the uh, Smithsonian uh, that the uh, driving while black for uh, a black America traveling by car in that era of segregation that opened roads that uh, presented serious dangers driving intersection uh, interstate uh, distances to unfamiliar locales. Black motors ran into uh, institutionalized racism in a number of uh, precarious forms from the hotels and restaurants that refused to accommodate them to the hostile and sundown towns uh, where posted signs uh, may warn people of color that they were banned after nightfall and that people of color, you know, I hate to use that term, but you know, that's what the Smithsonian is saying, but we're talking about black people because all people are people of some type of color, but black people, ladies and gentlemen, were, were banned from uh, being in certain towns after nightfall, which pretty much meant that you would come up missing, likely hanged and burned at the stake and the different things that was going on uh, back then. Now, uh, uh, Paula Winters, a, a, a uh, Manhattan-based uh, artist, recalled a, a frightening road trip when she was a, a young woman, a young girl, I should say, uh, during the uh, 1950s in uh, Northern uh, Carolina, North Carolina. Her family had hid uh, in their Buick after a, hotel, uh, after a local sheriff passed them, made a U-turn, and gave chase. When his father, Richard Arby, um, I.B., switched off his uh, headlights and parked under a tree. We sat until the sun came up, she said. We saw his lights pass back and forth. My sister was crying. My mother was hysterical. And I can believe that very thing because they knew what could possibly happen if that local sheriff had a caught up with them. It was awfully frustrating, especially, you know, a young sailor, Navy guy with a wife and young children. When I go back to the Navy base, everything was fine. You know, just a completely different world. So yeah, very frustrating. You had to watch your P's and Q's. You had to watch where you stop. I remember driving up to places and saying, well, we can't stop here. You know, but dad, I got to use the bathroom. We can't stop here. I was one of those people whose mother was from the South and whose father was from the North. So it meant that for my father and I, every time we went South, it was an experience to remember. My father was a smoker. And when I was a kid, my mother couldn't drive. So my father would drive the whole way. And I remember the day he pulled into what was a, a sort of motor lodge, um, probably outside of Richmond, Virginia. And he went into the motor lodge area and lighting a cigarette and smoking. And I remember looking up and seeing that the sign above him said, you know, white only. And I remember being terrified. You know, my mother's asleep, my brother's asleep, and I'm looking at this sign thinking something horrible is going to happen. And I'm dying as he's smoking the cigarette, right? Finally, he finishes his cigarette, he comes back in the car, and he sees that I'm really agitated. And he said to me, don't worry, this is my America too. 
And so even though there were things you couldn't do, places you couldn't go, the notion was that you claim your ownership of these spots whenever you could. And when I got out the car and went, you know, to ask for uh, a room or a house, they would say, oh, fine, not a problem. And how much? And then when my husband got out the car, he was a doctor gentleman. They would say, oh, we forgot. We just rented that out. So what happened is we had to ask where the colored section was. Now, I'm from Southwest Georgia, been used to being the nine service. I walked in this restaurant and records were six for a quarter. Bobby Darren and Brooke Bennett was my favorites. We had a time in Mac the Knife. I put my quarter in there and point six records and ordered my breakfast. I ordered some silver, egg sandwich, and ordered that and went to the jukebox. When I looked around, somebody was beating on the counter. When I got over there, I said, what's that? She said, this is your food, because we don't serve your kind in here. That's 1959, and it I said, you know what, ma'am? I said, my kind ain't gonna eat in here today, and walked out, left all my records playing on that jukebox. Now, that is just some of the uh, stories that uh, um, Black Americans, Black Native Americans, ladies and gentlemen, had to go through during the uh, slavery and during the uh, 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 Jim Crow era, you know, the segregation era, where things were, were really bad for us. And let me remind you now, I, when I'm, these stories that, that you're hearing and the uh, the things that you're hearing from me, ladies and gentlemen, is from what uh, common folk. We were just some good old common folk, hardworking uh, individuals who were, uh, 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 parents were taking care of their children and and trying to um, go see other family members or moving to more um, prominent areas where where jobs for uh, black people were plentiful. But let's not forget, ladies and gentlemen, that we had many <clears throat> uh, uh, black entertainers and movie stars and, and uh, 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 who went through this very same thing. And it didn't matter that they were world champion boxers like Clashes Clay or and, and and Joe Lewis, or that they were uh, um, uh, uh, beautiful uh, singers and entertainers like 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 uh, uh, Sam Cooke and 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 uh, um, uh, uh, Jim Brown, famous football players, and Martha Wells and and. and this list goes on and on with Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles and all the other wonderful entertainers that we had out there. Uh, 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 Sammy Davis Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, they went through these hardships and these uh, struggles as well. And so, you know, it was uh, uh, just as difficult for them as it was for uh, decent common uh, black folks. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen it, but you know, they made a movie that was called The Green Book. And the uh, the book was, uh, the movie was about this green book, and it was about a prominent individual, as I just got through naming, which was uh, uh, a lot of individuals. But we had um, 
a Dr. Don Shirley. He was a world-class black pianist and who is about to embark on a on a concert tour in the Deep South in 1962. In need of a driver and protection, Shirley recruited Tony Lip a tough-talking bouncer from an Italian uh, neighborhood in the Bronx. Despite their differences, the two uh, took this tour uh, uh, through the South, and uh, the two men soon developed an unexpected uh, bond uh, while confronting racism and dangers in, in the era of segregation. So I don't know if y'all seen that movie, but if you haven't, I, I recommend that you uh, uh, go and uh, check it out. Also, there was a documentary on that. I think it was called Driving a, a Wild Black, uh, The Green Book. And I, that, I believe, I don't know if that was in uh, October. Anyway, I, let me see it. Let me find this article. Let me see, yeah, okay. All right, here's an old article on it. Uh, Driving Wild Black, Race, Space, Mobility in America. It was uh, um, directed by a historian, and the uh, it premiered on uh, PBS. And the documentary revealed how the uh, automobile portrayed as the ultimate symbol of independence uh, had long been of particular significance to uh, Black Americans who uh, relied on travel guides and informative networks to keep them safe and, most importantly, alive. It goes on to say that it's uh, hardly surprising that the mobility for uh, black Americans had always been restricted from days of slavery to the Jim Crow America when sundown towns were things that Negro Moses' uh, green book became a necessary guide decades ago and the focus on um, black mobility continued in the form of recent stop and frisk laws in New York City that predominantly targeted uh, black people. Limitations on movement uh, from before the signing of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation has carried over in different forms uh, into reconstructions and beyond. And we all know this uh, so well to be true, even into this day, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to, into 2021. Well, in fact, we can go back just a, a few months ago in 2020, ladies and gentlemen. Remember when uh, George Floyd, he faced the same thing that Green Books would put out there for you. All George Floyd did was went to a store and uh, and got uh, uh, arrested by uh, police in the store who took him outside the store. And as you know, they beat him and, and threw him on the ground and put the uh, full body weight on this man's neck through his knee that ultimately uh, uh, suffocated his life and snuffed him out right there in front of all of America to see, ladies and gentlemen. And we know that this was just a few months ago. So we're talking about uh, things that have been happening from then all the way up to now. You would think by now you would see a change, but ladies and gentlemen, the way that black... Uh, 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 Black men and black women, you know what, black people in general are getting uh, uh, killed at the hands of these race soldiers. You know, back then you did have the help 
when you were traveling of the green book. But today, ladies and gentlemen, it's just very, very uh, difficult for uh, black people to just function in society, including in driving, because a lot of these uh, uh, black men, especially unarmed black men, I know a lot of us don't like to use that term because, you know, being unarmed kind of represents uh, that most black people are armed, you know. So that's the reason why uh, they keep saying unarmed. But uh, most black people are always unarmed. It's not a term that we have to use to where we just have to specifically say a, a unarmed uh, uh, a black person. What about a, an innocent person? An innocent person on his way to work, an innocent person on his way to the visit his relatives, on their way to the store like George Floyd, and being senselessly murdered in some um, modern-day lynching on the streets today. And that, so that's still what was happening. So that now that should let you know how essential uh, that Green Book was uh, back then. But I digress. Let me play this uh, video for you. Did you go to the AAA for the maps? Yes. No. I mean, the record companies gave me the maps and the itinerary and this thing. The Negro Motorist Green Book. Yeah, it lists all the places colors can stay down south. Like, you know, traveling while black. That's Viggo Mortensen and Linda Cardellini in the Golden Globe winning movie, Green Book. The movie's title is a reference to the real Green Book, a traveler's guide back in a hostile time, which some people still remember all too well. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. The fabulous Miss Mary Wilson. Watching Mary Wilson feeling the love at New York's glamorous Cafe Carlisle, it's hard to imagine what she felt at the age of 19. But my heart can't take you no more. A newly minted Supreme, just out of high school, on her first ever road tour with a regular who's who of Motown stars. Stevie Wonder. I really, really love her. Mary Wells, The Temptations, and others. 45 performers traveling by bus, confronted by hate in the still segregated South. We were getting off the bus, and there were gunshots. And they were shooting at the bus? Oh, yeah. We had a hole, several holes in the bus. You know, your parents had told you, be careful, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You knew about the segregation. But, I mean, the gunshots sort of brought it right into your face and saying, uh, you could be killed. Strange It was this chilling fact of life, the racism that in 1936 inspired the Negro Motorist Green Book. Victor Green, a postal worker who lived in Harlem, began publishing a guide to businesses that welcomed African-American travelers. But let me say this, ladies and gentlemen, that's when he first published it. But this book was out years before that, more like in 1933, I believe it was, when he first uh, uh, started writing this book and putting it together. And it was being used uh, largely in, in the uh, South. But uh, this book was yeah, way out years before it received its first true publication. 
to be careful on the road. Old Jim Crow won't let people like us stop just anywhere. In each year's edition, a warning. Carry your green book with you. You may need it. It just makes me wonder and make me think about today. At the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., visitors can experience the not-so-long-gone era of the Green Book. I remember as a little child going down south from Detroit, and my parents had to be strategic as to where they stopped. It was after the Depression, before the war, the auto culture was really burgeoning. There were more jobs for black people. Candace Taylor is a cultural historian whose book about the Green Book will be published this fall. By the 40s, the second wave of the Great Migration was underway. And so you had 1.5 million black people leaving the South during that time. At risk if they owned nice cars. His dad worked for the railroad, had a good job, and his mother was sitting in the front seat. Taylor tells the story of her own stepfather's family being stopped and relying on this tried-and-true subterfuge for avoiding trouble. So the sheriff comes to the door and says, you know, who's this car? Where are you going? Who are these people with you? <laughs> and his father says, you know, this is my employer's car. He looked to his wife and he said, and she's the maid, and this is her son. And then the next question was, well, where's your hat? Meaning the chauffeur's hat. And he said, it's hanging right in the back, officer. Essentials for driving in and out of the Jim Crow South, that chauffeur's hat and the green book. The green book was like a Bible. You did not leave home without it. I think this was taken in Louisville. Alice Clay Broadwater relied on it. She was a teacher then, traveling with her lawyer husband and small children between Boston and the South. Black travelers in those days, in the 50s, had to carry the Green Book if they needed to stay overnight someplace or if they wanted to know where they could eat. Unless, of course, there were no Green Book listings en route. It was not only frightening, it was very unsafe. If you're stopping on the side of the road, you know, you can't really sleep. So you'd pull off the road to take a nap? Yes. Or to sleep? Yes. Because there was no place else? Absolutely. Route 66 was a huge hit for Nat King Cole. But here's the irony. For black travelers looking for places to stay along its more than 2,400 miles, Good luck. Green Book sites were scarce. So-called sundown towns were plentiful. You'd see a sign on the way in. What would it say? N-word. Don't let the sun set on you here. You could have a Green Book, but you could still find yourself in a sundown town at the wrong time. And sometimes you'd be escorted out of town by law enforcement. Sometimes you'd be harassed or chased or worse. Often, a safe place to stay. This was one of the rooms? Yes, this is it. Was a room in someone's house. Since 2014, this historical marker has stood outside a Green Book-listed tourist home in Columbia, South Carolina. You've got all kinds of pictures here. Run by Reggie Scott's mother and aunt. That's you as That's a kid. That's me, yeah. 89 now, Scott grew up in the Harriet M. Cornwell tourist home and became a musician because of the players who stayed here. 
Cab Calloway was my greatest excitement. He came in and tripped. He, he was here he in was this here. house? Yes, Cab was here. Wow. If there's one common denominator we found doing the story, it is the musicians. The unbelievably famous names who were also victims of segregation. Duke Ellington and Billie Holiday stayed here. A lot of times they were performing downtown where they were welcome to perform but not welcome to stay. The Rossonian Hotel and Lounge in Denver. That's amazing. Now undergoing renovation, was one of more than 80 businesses in the area listed in the Green Book. These places carry a spirit with them, you know, which is why it's so important that they're still here. I was scouting about 30 sites a day. Candace Taylor put 23,000 miles on her car during just one of her trips around the country, documenting more than 9,600 of the sites. If I had to guess, I'd say about at least 85% were black owned. But there were sites like Charlie's Sandwich Shop in Boston that was in Southie that was owned by a white man. Charlie Poulos, a Greek immigrant, opened the restaurant in 1927 and with his partner, Christy Mangerides, served all races, possibly the first restaurant in Boston to do so. Was there a backlash? There was, yeah, there was some pushback. Damien Marcianti bought Charlie's in 2017. The original owners did not care. They just were welcome to everybody. If you didn't like it, you didn't come in. It didn't hurt that the Black Pullman Porters Union had its headquarters upstairs. The railroad workers spread the word about Charlie's even before it began listing in the Green Book in 1947. And of course, the jazz greats read their Green Books and came to Charlie's. Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Sammy Davis Jr. He used to tap dance out in front of the, the diner. As times changed, so did the Green Book, for sale by subscription and at Esso gas stations in its heyday. It sold two million copies a year. But in the 1948 edition, Victor Green wrote, there will be a day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published. This is when we as a race will have equal opportunities and privileges in the United States. And then that day comes, and he never lives to see it because he dies in 1960. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, mandating the end of segregation. Publication of the Green Book ceased in 1967. It was largely forgotten, its true legacy underestimated. Walk with me. It's so important that we look at the Green Book not just as a historic travel guide, not as just something that we needed in the past, Walk with me. but what the Green Book teaches us is about the resilience and the courage of what black people were able to do and accomplish in spite of the circumstances and everything that happened. What it means.
means to be American is to take to the road. Mobility is essential to freedom. Discovery. Freedom. The notion of driving while black reminds us that that's not available to all Americans. To be able to move freely. We live in a country where it's never been everybody's right. There are still so many dangers. We have to engage history with a kind of brutal honesty. So it was what it was back then, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we dealt with it and a lot of us made it through and some of us didn't. But uh, today, ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, your green book today is... uh, Black social media outlets like this one. This grass, these black grassroots media outlets, ladies and gentlemen, they're your green book up today. This is where you're going to get your knowledge. This is where you're going to get your war briefings. This is where you're going to get your your current uh, uh, news in a, uh, a black perspective and put to you in a narrative that is true and not uh, has been watered down and filtered up with the uh, flavorings that lamestream media puts before you uh today so that documentary ladies and gentlemen i i I encourage you to go check that out as well go ahead go look at the uh uh, that movie the green book as well as check out the uh pbs documentary uh driving wild black and that article goes on to say that the uh, documentary covers all of that and more it's exhaustive but in order to chronicle this story well as the film does, it has to be chronicling the uh, riveting history and personal experiences of black Americans on the road. The film digs into the deep web of information tied to the enduring phrases driving while black, which has rooted in the uh, everyday black America's experience told through the stories of the men and women and children who actually lived it. And as far as I'm concerned, ladies and gentlemen, that's all of us because we're still living in this uh, social structure of uh, systemic racism. And it has touched any um, black or melanated individual in some kind of way. It goes on to say that drawing on the wealth of the uh, recent uh, scholarships and the serene uh, owned um, memories of travel. Driving while black began with uh, experimentation of requisition traveling or travels during the uh, middle passage considered the uh, limitations on movement enforced during slavery, examines the Jim Crow era racism, and eventually gets to the events of the automobile. It goes on to say that uh, for black American cars, arrived as a refuge in an automobile there was no white only sections to deal with boy isn't that true but i will say this there are white sections of town that you may not want your black car driving through your black owned and operated vehicle i can show you uh uh, and tell you of many uh incidents of uh people getting stopped today driving uh while black it's no secret i'm sure a lot of you have your own uh stories some of you have some horror stories behind driving while black we'll be right back ladies and gentlemen after this swift commercial break
Okay, now again, ladies and gentlemen, like I was telling you, in automobile, uh, there was no white-only section to deal with. So you was, uh, there was no having to uh, give up your seat to a white passenger. Essentially, it meant not having to adhere to the humiliating Jim Crow laws. Additionally, uh, cars allowed uh, migration to industrialized cities, which was a big thing for us to be able to go where the jobs were. And to be able to take your family with you, you know, not like before, a lot of uh, uh, black men had to uh, travel to where these jobs were and get these jobs and, and send uh, uh, money home. Well, ladies and gentlemen, automobiles and being able to mobilize yourself and your family was a huge uh, deal to uh, keeping yourself employed and keeping food on the table and being able to uh, to travel was uh, uh, the automobile did all of these things for um, uh, black families. Visiting family members was made much easier. Automobiles uh, became, uh, became a tool for employment. Civil rights activists drove around the country preaching their points of view in person, which the automobile made that possible. But the uh, mobility came with uh, repercussions, as you all know. Uh, businesses often refused services to a black customer or treated them poorly. Um, black Americans could not drive through a certain cities or stay past a certain time of day, which you know that meant if you was in a sundown city, you better get out of there before the sun uh, hit the deck. Uh, black people who traveled even within uh, their own vicinity encountered violence or faced the uh, likelihood of death. And although things had improved in the uh, 21st century, the documentary, the documentary uh, reveals that it still has uh, uh, been uh, um, geographically uneven and there's still quite a ways to go in the terms of the treatment of black people in America, even in 2021, ladies and gentlemen. This is a uh, well-known fact. So I'm going to talk, I'm sure many of you have seen the Green Book movie, um, and I'm going to talk this evening really about something, a broader story. And that story is about the automobile and the role that the automobile played in African-American life. I'd like you all to think about how important your mobility is to you. How important is it that you're able to travel where you want to, when you want to. How important is that to American liberty? The ability to travel freely is something that all of us in this room take for granted. Um, but if you think about the role that liberty, that, that mobility played for African-Americans, for very much of American history, African-Americans were prohibited from traveling freely. Travel um, and the idea of journey is central to the African-American experience. The ordeal of the Middle Passage and enslavement begins the journey for African-Americans. And it's central to what it means to be black in this country. But the idea of travel is about forced travel. This is a pass, a slave pass. And it says, please to let Benjamin McDaniel pass to Dr. Henkel's in Newmarket, Shenandoah County, Virginia, and return on Monday or Tuesday next to Montpelier for Mrs. Madison. 
June 1, 1843. So African-Americans traveling had to have passes. They had to have permission. Freedom was so important to many enslaved persons that they ran away. They stole themselves and exercised their freedom of movement. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a five-year-old granddaughter and she's given me the kindergarten, uh, the kindergarten gold. Um, in the early 20th century, the Great Migration, which is the next step in the journey for African-Americans, is the story of the greatest mass movement of people in this country's history. Seeking job opportunities in the North and fleeing racism and poverty in the South, many, as many as seven million African-Americans left their homes seeking refuge in such cities as Chicago, New York, Detroit, Newark, where my parents moved, and Philadelphia, where my uncle moved. With expanding opportunities in education and employment came more and more black citizens among the ranks of the black middle class. The freedom of mobility to go where you wanted, when you wanted, became essential. But it also came to mean the ability to avoid the indignity of the Jim Crow bus and the Jim Crow railroad car. And here is a Jim Crow bus. In the first half of the 20th century, behavior and etiquette for African-Americans was proscribed by geography and by custom. If you were from a particular place, you knew what the rules were. The rules changed from place to place throughout the United States. Each state had its own rules. Each community had its own expected etiquette. Emmett Till didn't know the rules of racial etiquette, for example. Particular driving etiquette was also expected. African-Americans faced segregation in most aspects of public travel and accommodation in the South, where it was overt, but in the North, it was dictated by custom. So it was de facto segregation of buses, taxis, trains, hotels, restaurants, beaches, and just about any place that people gathered. And this is a Jim Crow railroad car, insulting, humiliating, filthy, as well as dependent on timetables. Although they were only supposed to run in the South, many of them ran in the North as well, and African-Americans, even if you purchased a first-class ticket, were often expected to go into the Jim Crow car. This is a Columbia and Gulf Railroad car from 1929. And you can see the word colored on those back seats. The automobile gave African-Americans freedom. It freed black travelers from the tyranny of the Jim Crow railroad car and bus. It offered freedom of movement and it offered dignity. African-Americans found that the segregated trains that gave them no dignity um, and here, well, here's your own private rolling living room, right? If you were driving in your own car, you had a private space, it was protected. You were, you were freed from the segregated insults. You were freed from listening to the bus driver tell you to move to the back of the bus. You were freed from the railroad car that might be right behind the engine. So this was really an important uh, change in African-American life, the automobile. By the 1950s, with the interstate highway system, up upwardly mobile black families were able to travel and become travel consumers. 
and they started to consume travel just as they consumed things like refrigerators and televisions and coffee percolators. They used the dollars in their disposable income to purchase automobiles and campers and hotel rooms and restaurant meals. With their history of forced travel, it was important for the black middle class to travel for leisure. They chose to travel because they could. Often parents worked hard to make sure that their children were not aware of the indignities they faced. So the children installed in the back seats of these cars weren't always even aware of the indignities their parents faced, nor were they aware of the danger that their parents faced when they went out on the road. Now, if you think about the make and model of automobiles, the make and model was very much tied to identity. African-Americans purchased large cars. And we know this from market studies that were done of African-Americans that were conducted in the 1940s and 1950s by research firms for the black newspapers. African-American motorists preferred large, heavy Buicks and Oldsmobiles, those kinds of cars that we now would call gas guzzlers. These are not small cars. I think African-Americans preferred large cars because they offered protection. They were hard to turn over. They were a place to sleep if necessary. You could carry blankets and pillows and you could sleep in your car. You would carry water for the radiator. You could carry extra fan belts. You carried those big, heavy Coleman coolers full of food because you couldn't stop at a restaurant. Black motorists created a home away from home in their automobiles. And this is an ad for the Buick Electra. And it says, all the Electra lacks is a fireplace. <laughs> so the, the Electra was a heavy car and you could sleep in it if you needed to. When civil rights worker Medgar Evers needed a car to travel through rural Mississippi, he chose an Oldsmobile Rocket 88. The Rocket was large enough to enable Medgar to stretch out for the night on the front seats, and it responded immediately if he hit the accelerator, uh, enabling him to get away from a pursuing car. This is a picture of the Rocket 88. And we know that Medgar Evers died beside his car in his driveway, shot by a sniper on June 12th, 1963. African-Americans also saw their automobiles as a symbol of class status. And this is a, a Cadillac um, on a Harlem street. African-Americans were often prevented by discrimination from purchasing houses. You couldn't buy a house because your neighborhood was redlined and banks would not give you a mortgage. Therefore, the car became their largest and most important purchase. And therefore, African-Americans used their disposable income to buy beautiful cars. Now you may have heard the stereotype that all African-Americans bought Cadillacs. African-Americans purchased Cadillacs in exactly the same proportion, percentage, as white Americans. That's 3%. 3% of African-Americans purchased Cadillacs. That is a stereotype that all African-Americans had those, those Cadillacs. The preferred car was the Buick or the Oldsmobile. But for African-Americans, travel by car posed a paradox. African-Americans had the freedom to travel, but they were forced to stay in segregated black neighborhoods 
and segregated black tourist accommodations that would accept them. Now, I'd like you to think for a minute about what it was like for all Americans before there were cars, before the automobile. Before the automobile, people generally stayed put. They didn't travel very far at all from their own neighborhoods. White people generally stayed in white neighborhoods. Black people generally stayed in black neighborhoods. In some poor neighborhoods, black and white people lived side by side, but the country was generally segregated by race. Now think about what happens with the automobile. With their cars, African-Americans crisscrossed the country traveling through white spaces to get from a safe black space to another safe, safe black space, say to get from a black neighborhood to a black resort, they had to go through a variety of white spaces where they were unwelcome. They faced signs, billboards, posters, and objects that ranged from insulting to frightening. They asserted their rights to unfettered travel by going where they wanted, when they wanted, and this could be dangerous. The landscape for African-American travelers was fraught with psychologically and emotionally damaging messages. And this is just one example of those kinds of messages, a welcome to Klan country sign. This is a restaurant chain that was popular on the West Coast. It started in Salt Lake City and diners entered the restaurant through the giant coon's mouth. And this is the banner that welcomed um, visitors to Greenville, Texas. Greenville, welcome, the blackest land, the whitest people. And of course, there were hundreds of sundown towns in the United States. Um, and as African-Americans traveled, they were faced with towns that actually had signs that said, if you were black, you needed to be out of town before sundown. Um, and these communities were all over the United States uh, many, many in the Midwest, many in the West, and even a few like Darien, Connecticut in the Northeast. There's a great story that um, Thurgood Marshall told. He was standing on a train car, a train uh, platform, waiting for a train to Shreveport. And a man came up to him and said, and this is, be this is before Thurgood Marshall was Supreme Court Justice when he was a lawyer for the NAACP. And the man says to him, nigger boy, what are you doing in this town? And he says, I'm waiting for the train to Shreveport. And the man says, well, nigger boy, you better be out of this town before sundown because the sun has never set with a nigger in this town. And that's a story that, that Thurgood Marshall tells in his um, autobiography. Some African-Americans faced all kinds of intimidation and even real dangers when they traveled. And this is uh, a fair in Colorado. I have to wonder why were they wearing these outfits on the Ferris wheel? So African-Americans often depended on travel guides like the Negro Motorist Green Book, which was produced in New York City. Now, how many of you have heard of the Negro Motorist Green Book? Many of you. And how many of you have heard of all the other dozens of travel guides that existed? There were many different travel guides for a variety of audiences. If you were um, a part of a church group or um, a, a fraternity or a sorority, there were guides that 
that found special housing for you. There were guides for show people. There were many different guides. And in the back of black newspapers and magazines, there were travel guides as well. So the Green Book is the most long-lasting of the African-American travel guides. And the reason it was so long-lasting was because of their relationship with Standard Oil, uh, which is Exxon, or formerly Esso, gas stations. Um, Esso was owned by Standard Oil, and they saw African-Americans as a market. And they had enlightened self-interest. They thought, these people have money, and we would like to get some of it. And they had a policy of non-discrimination in their bathrooms uh, at their gas stations. And so African-Americans very often uh, preferred Esso gasoline. Rightfully so, because that was one of the few gas stations that you could go in, uh, like Charlie's uh, a Sandwich Shop, and uh, you were not discriminated against. Oh, sure, we knew it. Exo um, was... Um, out for the uh, dollar market, but it was a safe haven. It was a place where you could actually stop, get gasoline, you know, get $5 worth of gasoline, give them a $20 bill, and you would get your change. But at so many other gas stations, ladies and gentlemen, this was just not the case. They always had uh, bathrooms, a uh, clean, uh, um, decent bathrooms for uh, black people to use. So you had many people, ladies and gentlemen, EXO was just the uh, place to go to get your, um, get your fuel. And i tell you something about this Green Book. Now, uh, uh, the police killings of uh, innocent uh, um, black people are a testament to this. So much that in uh, 2017, uh, Arthur James Miles published a post-racial Negro Green Book, which is taken on to the historical travel guide. Now, this is of late, ladies and gentlemen. We're talking about just uh, uh, um, uh, three, four years ago. The um, uh, But this one is a 2013-2016 state-by-state collection of police brutality, racial profiling, and everyday racist behavior by businesses and private citizens so actually it was it's an up-to-date uh, um a green book just like i told you earlier on in this episode that now your green book ladies and gentlemen is that where you better get your news and your information and and find out all the stories that are important to us on the uh uh black uh grassroots media outlet stations just to uh uh, uh, let you know this. Now we're going to get back to a uh, sister Shireen, uh, who is giving this lecture. Also, who was a part of the uh, film of Driving Wild Black. They gave away the Green Book, and that helped Victor Green to make his uh, Green Book successful. The idea for the Green Book was based on Jewish travel guides. Victor Green writes in the very first issue of the Green Book that his Jewish brethren gave him the idea for the travel guide. So when you, if you were a Jewish American and you were traveling, you also needed to be concerned about places to stay. Very often, if you called a hotel and said your name was Schwartz or, or your name was Reuben, you would find that suddenly they had no rooms available. So, um, Jewish newspapers 
and Jewish, there were Jewish guides that told you places that you could stay and, and places where you could observe the dietary laws. Green really believed that travel was fatal to prejudice. He believed if people went out across the country, it would help to defeat prejudice in this country. And this is a quote from Mark Twain um, from The Innocents Abroad. He says, travel is fatal to prejudice. And Victor Green adopted that as his mantra. This is Victor Green and his wife, Alma. Green was a postal worker. He opened a business in Harlem. He opened the Green Publishing Company. Now, what is so important, and the reason I always talk and show Alma, is because Victor Green dies in 1960, and the Green Publishing Company was then operated by Alma Green and by four other women. So it was a five-woman operation, and this was a business that uh, publishing business was very unusual for women to be working in publishing in this time period, much less running a publishing company. But uh, Alma Green continues to run the publishing company until the late 1960s. Victor Green had a variety of ways of finding places to put in his green book and Alma. I have to make sure Alma's in there. Um, one of the ways was by sending out postcards and by sending out letters and asking his travelers, people that had good experiences traveling, to, to send him information about the places that they stayed. The Green Book included gas stations, and this one, of course, is an ESSO station, hotels, motels, restaurants, YMCAs, um, but also churches, doctors, beauticians, barbers, um, and there was an article, at least one article in each issue. An article might tell you about Philadelphia um, and, and the things that you could do and see in Philadelphia, or it might tell you about Chicago. They usually were, were geographically um, situated and they told you the places where you might be welcome to visit, that you might be welcome to visit. Uh, the Re Green Book also courted the black middle class and reflects black middle class values about polite and well-mannered behavior. And here, I think you can, you can see that. Um, you have a very charming uh, middle class couple with matched luggage. You can see a little bit of their car and you can see their suburban neighborhood um, in the background. It was the black middle class that could afford to travel um, and Green shows us the ideal black traveling couple. Over the course of the life of the Green Book, it, the content expanded from just New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut to the entire East Coast, then the entire United States, then all of North America, and finally to Europe, Africa, and Asia. But there were other travel guides like this one. This is the Baltimore Afro-American travel map that was a part of the Afro-American newspaper. Other guides were called the Go Guide, Travel Guide, The Travel Guide, and The Bronze American, just to name a few. And you can also see the kind of middle-class iconography here with the, the uh, couple playing golf in the upper right-hand corner. Many of the places that were listed in the guides, especially the early ones, were either uh, YMCA dorm rooms or the homes of, of African-American families. So you might, if you had an empty room or an extra room, women rented their rooms out and might provide a good breakfast 
um, as a way to make extra money for their families. And this is a YMCA room. This is the rock. If any of you have visited the African American Museum in um, Washington, D.C., you've seen the, the rock for rock rest, which was a, uh, a, leisure, a, a leisure place to stay in Kittery, Maine. Um, it was an African American guest house that was run by Hazel and Clayton Sinclair. And this is the rock in its original environment. Um, this was a place that was away from the beach. Um, the beaches were segregated um, in Portsmouth and in Kittery, um, but you could go and you could stay uh, for a week or two weeks at Rockrest. You could enjoy your meals at Rockrest. Hazel was apparently a really good cook and she catered meals for the white community as well as for the black community. There were other places to stay like Mackenzie's Court in Hot Springs, in Hot Springs Arkansas. Um, which was a motor hotel and perfect for the automobile. You could park right outside your door. Most of these places were owned by African-Americans, but some were owned by white Americans, but catered only to black people. Um, these are some advertisements from the Green Book. They offered the same values and products that were offered for whites in parallel establishments. Um, some of the folks that operated these places clearly placed themselves in the ads to show readers that they were black. And this grainy picture is of Shenandoah National Park. Um, I know the national parks like to say that you were always welcome at the national parks, and the national parks were always welcome, were always open to African Americans. The problem was that all of the park facilities the um, guest houses, the hotels, the restaurants were operated by private, um, private individuals and they discriminated. So this is the picnic ground for Negroes at Shenandoah National Park. It took a long time for the national parks to be fully integrated. But I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about the role of the automobile in the civil rights movement. It was really very important for the, the automobile played a key and pivotal role in the civil rights movement. You couldn't have the civil rights movement without the automobile. This is Ware's supermarket and Ware is clearly tying himself to Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, very, very important and very dangerous. Um, if you were, uh, if the white community was concerned about um, King coming to your community. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The man at the front of this line um, is a, a jazz singer, and he is traveling back to the Gaston Motel in Birmingham after this, after participation in this picket line. Uh, this is the Gaston Motel after it was bombed. Gaston provided spaces for civil rights workers to stay. The civil rights uh, movement, people working in civil rights needed places to stay. When they went south, they needed places to eat. Um, and these places were, were the targets of um, bombings. Some of these places were listed in the Green Book, including the Lorraine Motel, which is the place where Martin Luther King was assassinated. Now consider 
how important it would be to have an automobile if your job was to travel around an entire county and register voters. If you had to travel an entire county or if you had to travel an entire state and register voters. This was, this is called the Jenkins Microbus and it's a, a pretty marvelous bus. Apparently part of it is now at the African American Museum, a recently acquired edition. And this bus was used to travel all over the state of Alabama to register voters, but also it was used as a school to train voters in literacy um, so that they could pass the literacy tests. Um, and it was a haven for children and it was used as a meeting space. So it was so important to be able to have mobility when you were trying to register voters and bring people into the civil rights movement. Um, but the bus boycott was perhaps the, the most significant use of the automobile. And there were bus boycotts all over the South. Um, here you see Martin Luther King um, helping some women into a car so that they can get to work. In order for them to bankrupt, really bankrupt the Montgomery bus system, it was important for them to be able to, for people to continue to be able to go to work and to move about the city. The way they were able to move about the city was by the per through the purchase of a fleet of automobiles. So Martin Luther King and the bus boycott purchased automobiles and people who already had cars helped people to drive to work so that they could continue to keep their jobs. Um, and they were able to cut the bus revenue by 69% and still keep their jobs, but only because they had automobiles to take people to work. That goes to show you, ladies and gentlemen, that how important the automobile was. That goes to show you how important the Green Book was. So it didn't just serve as a uh, catalyst for uh, travel across the uh, divided snakes, but as you can see in this presentation that it had many uh, more uses. And then you got to remember, ladies and gentlemen, back then you just had some uh, individuals that they just stayed, they lived in their car. Everything that they needed was in the uh, trunk or on the passenger side of the front seat. And uh, a lot of them, ladies and gentlemen, they just slept in their, their back seats. They found these safe havens and these uh, uh, green books. And sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, at some of these places where they may couldn't afford the room, they was able to uh, park in the driveways and, and uh, they was able to uh, get a, 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 a good night's sleep. So the importance of a vehicle was extremely important. The mobility of it alone was not just one of the factors why it was important for black Americans to be able to uh, have a vehicle and afford it and, and uh, be able to do the things that was necessary for basic survival. But on the same token, ladies and gentlemen, the, uh, it also had its uh, uh, setbacks especially if you were uh, caught driving while black. And that even applies today, ladies and gentlemen. You see how so many innocent people are incarcerated, 
uh, uh, beaten and uh, even killed by these uh, race soldiers that are so-called uh, officers to protect and serve. This is just not the case. You just have to tell it like it is. And uh, so it had its pros and cons, but it had more pros than it did have cons. But yet still, you were subjected, even today, to all type of tyranny, even for owning a car today. I mean, you got these uh, 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 um, state-sanctioned uh, race soldiers who will pull you over just because you're driving a nice vehicle. And they will start pocket-watching you and questioning you. And uh, and if they don't get the right... Uh, um, answers and technically there ain't no right answers because if you're driving a nice car and this and this may be a, a step up better than the one that they're driving oh you're going to get some resistance and you're going to get some trouble behind that where did you get this money to uh afford such a nice car or whose car is this where are you going what are you doing who do you work for these are things that happen today, ladies and gentlemen, in 2021 that we're still faced with when it comes to uh, um, owning an um, automobile. And we've seen all too many uh, times where uh, black people were jailed and, and, and killed simply because they had a, a nice vehicle. It's, it's shameful and it's, uh, that, that this is, I have to tell you, this, some, this is the reality of it. And then whenever that is the case, they always want to associate that you uh, obtained this uh, nice set of wheels, not because you're a, a prominent uh, business owner, a worker, or, or doctor, or an attorney, because we've, had, uh, we've seen many videos where they were stopped as well. We've seen... Um, black um cops who were captains that were uh, pulled over and uh, interrogated we've seen the same thing happen to doctors we've seen one doctor ladies and gentlemen who was out, who was uh giving out uh, uh um uh, coronavirus tests for free for the homeless and, and providing them with meals and tents and different things like that we saw him get uh, handcuffed not only in front of his uh, uh um his automobile where he was uh putting things in there to go and give out these uh free testings and, and uh, these free uh, uh blankets and things like that he was in front of his own home i did an episode on it you can go back and check up on that, uh, that episode and you'll find many others us like this so uh, this uh, uh, the automobile is a, a good thing to have, and it, but it it has uh, a cons to it, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, are are, are when it comes to uh, being black while driving. Just to put it uh, plainly, so the automobile becomes a weapon in the arsenal of the civil rights movement. It was also key when people needed to get from the airport to their hotels since cabs were segregated and black cabs were not allowed to pick up people at hotels 
people flying into various cities for protests would rent a car, um, and that would be a, their way of getting to the hotel. So how does the story end? In 1964, LBJ passes major civil rights legislation that extends voting rights, and it outlaws segregation, and immediately all public accommodations are opened to African Americans. So the major chain hotels, the Sheridan, Howard Johnson's, um, the Hilton, are open to African Americans. And because they can stay at those places, they do stay at those places. So the question I have is, does this story end? Or does it remain an issue in America? And this is Philando Castile, who was murdered in his automobile by a Minnesota police officer in 2016 in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. And the officer was acquitted of manslaughter um, because he was simply, he said he was afraid of Philando Castile um, simply because of the color of his skin. Uh, this is a cartoon by Stuart Carlson, who is the former editorial cartoonist for the Milwaukee Journal Central, uh, Sentinel. Uh, and it's funny, but it's also, it's also not funny. So I guess, I guess the question is, are we still in this place? Um, has this story ended or does it continue? It continues. And how do we, um, how do we address the problem that we have now with African-Americans and the automobile? Um, the Green Book goes out of business and the black hotels, the irony is the black hotels gradually lose their clientele and the large chain hotels um, flourish, but the black hotels go out of business. But the landscape is forever changed with the help of ordinary men and women choosing the automobile um, and travel as their weapon. And now I would like to show you a clip from our upcoming documentary. Sorry, you have to look at my terrible. Let's see if we can. She's preparing the presentation. Good roads beckon to you and me. Daily, we grow more motorwise. The nomad in the poorest and the mightiest of us sends us behind the wheel. North, south, east, and west, in answer to the call of the road. It's mighty good to be a skipper for a change pilot our own craft with her when we will. We feel like Vikings. What if our craft is blood of nose and limited of power and our sea is macadamized? It's food for the spirit just to give the old railroad Jim Crow the laugh. Nevertheless, there's still a small cloud that stands between us and complete motor travel freedom. On a trail, this cloud rarely troubles us. 
in the mornings. But as the afternoon wears on, it casts a shadow of apprehension on our hearts. Where, it asks us, will you stay tonight? An innocent enough question to our Nordic friends of no consequence. But to you and me, what a peace-destroying world of potentiality. Alfred Edgar Smith, 1933. I think the myth of mobility in the United States, which rests heavily upon white people's experience with cars and the way in which we've actually commercialized and celebrated that experience with cars, turns the cross-country trip into an adventure. For African-Americans, trips across country, but even trips within regions in automobiles are not adventures. They can often be trials from car accidents, to looking for places to eat and looking for places to sleep. African-Americans could never casually ignore the fact that that required an extraordinary amount of planning. It required an extraordinary amount of thought. And one, even after you had planned and thought it out, had to be particularly careful about how you negotiated the roads, how you negotiated the towns, and how you negotiated your private space moving through a white public that was in fact actually deeply suspicious of black people moving freely, especially unknown black people moving freely. Geographically, we were completely separate into spaces that were divided by race. So black people didn't venture into white spaces. White people generally didn't venture into black spaces. But the automobile changes that. Highways intersect all of these spaces, and now people are out on the road moving between spaces. And it changes interactions, it changes etiquette, it changes the way we we think about one another and the way we interact with one another. And it really starts to open up the country in ways that it had never been opened up before. The car comes to represent what many historians would call a notion of democratic personhood. That you, as an individual, can pilot your car to do whatever it is you want to do. And it becomes a symbol of American freedom. As the roadways open up, I think that you have a parallel movement occurring. See the USA in your Chevrolet. America's asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA. America's the greatest land of all. On a highway or a road along a levee. For white Americans, they're discovering the joys of the open road. They see this as a place where they can 
maybe drive to California, see the Grand Canyon, go to Death Valley or something like that. See a big city. For African Americans, this movement on the open road is about seeking an opportunity for a better life. Jim Crow in your own car. Your car was your own personal private space. So the problem with going out in a car, you're traversing white spaces now, and it could be quite dangerous. The open road, you could encounter a mob, you could make the wrong turn and end up in a community that was not very welcoming, that was not very friendly. And many, many African-Americans during Jim Crow accidentally ventured into the wrong spaces. Black Americans had a very different experience from white Americans. What white Americans took for granted, that if you move your Buick or Oldsmobile or Ford onto a highway, first of all, there will be a gas station somewhere. If something happens to it, you can get it repaired. But secondly, somewhere along that road, there's a place to stay. It's hard for the rest of us to imagine what it must have been like with a car full of your family, whom you love, and the kids are crying and saying they want something to eat. And your wife is saying, we got to stop for the night. And what do you do? You slept in the car, you slept at a family, friends. And you're always afraid sleeping in the car, somebody stay awake because you don't know what's going to happen, you know. White folks pull up on you and do whatever they want to you, you know. And that, that was always the danger. You try to pull back in the woods off the highway, you know, where you might not be observed. <laughs> that was the condition. Victor Green was the businessman who started the Negro Motorists Green Book, which was an African-American travel guide that started in 1936, and it was published until 1966, and it took African-Americans throughout the country safely. Um, this is a time period when everything was segregated, north and south, and Green came up with this idea that what a fantastic thing it would be if there was a travel guide that could help African-Americans to travel through the country. Carry your green book with you. You may need it. Victor Green, 1936. He was a postman who lived up in Harlem but had a route in New Jersey. He and his wife, Alma, would go back to the South to visit her relatives during the summer. So I think what was the personal motivation was this trip back to the South. How can I do this trip without having to experience the indignations of segregation and Jim Crow? The Green Book was actually a simple listing by state, alphabetically by state, of tourist homes and guest houses, hotels and motels, uh, restaurants, nightclubs, 
even beauty parlors and barbershops that African-Americans could use as they traveled throughout the country. So if you're leaving your home state and you were going on vacation and African-Americans wanted to travel just as white Americans wanted to travel, they wanted to see the country. The Green Book actually does something for us that we need. It reminds us of the world that black people created under the regime of segregation. And we don't need to be nostalgic about Jim Crow to celebrate the extraordinary genius, the brilliance of black entrepreneurs, the men and women who built businesses in the confines of a vicious segregation system to serve black customers. We do need to remember that that world existed because of the viciousness of American racialism and because of the capacity of black people and the commitment of black people to resisting that system of oppression. And that is so true. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, after this very swift commercial break. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. You know what? There will be a day someday when this guide uh, will not uh, have to be published. I really don't know when that is because uh, looking at today's times as a day standard, ladies and gentlemen, there is some type of guide that can still be used. And um, because uh, that is when, you know, when we as a race will have uh, equal opportunities and privileges in the United States, which so far, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion, we have not received. And I feel bad for um, um, Victor Hughes Greens, who didn't see the uh, some accomplishments and some achievements that we've made since he first uh, published that book seeing how he died in the uh in 1960 you know that was four years before congress had uh, passed the civil rights act and even though that act have been um was passed as you all know we're still this country the divided snakes is still very much uh, deep in uh, systemic racism Well, I'm one thing I'm sure of. I'm sure that every uh, uh, Native Black American, every uh, uh, melanated individual would like to thank uh, uh, Victor uh, Green for his uh, contribution to the uh, successful travels of um, Black America. The, the, the many lives that he's probably saved is going to be uh, uh, unmeasurable. And, uh, but uh, Greens has a lasting uh, influence, ladies and gentlemen, on Black America. And if you uh, think about it, uh, um, asking people to open up their homes uh, to people that was traveling, just as the, uh, uh, the beauty of that alone, some folks uh, charged a little, but <clears throat> many didn't. And, all of that played a big part in where we are today. So we thank uh, Victor Green for his uh, contributions to uh, Black history and the many lives that he has uh, uh, saved because of his uh, uh, undying effort to uh, 
to his people and to the cause that uh, that was uh, greatly needed uh, in this uh, country. I want to thank y'all so much for uh, staying tuned for this a uh, little bit uh, longer uh, episode than I had anticipated, but I'm sure it has opened the minds and the hearts and the souls of uh, everyone who was listening uh, as well as it did for me and the employees of uh, uh, Chilling with Teddy G. Uh, again, thank y'all so much for tuning in. As I always tell you guys at the end of the uh, every show, please continue to do your social distancing. Please continue to wear your outer gear. And you know what that consists of. Your glasses, your face masks, your shields, your gloves, your shoe coverings. Anything that will help reduce the spread of this virus. You know how I tell you if you're outside for any extended amount of time, you need to come in, remove those clothes, get a machine washed right away. Get yourselves bathed up, or showered up, freshened up, and uh, before you decide to relax into your homes to reduce the spread of this virus that has now seemed to have uh, mutated into uh, several more strains. But still, no matter how many strands it mutates to, don't you forget that your immune system is the number one defense against this virus or any other viruses out there. A healthy and a strong immune system is your first line of defense. So you must eat your proper meals. You must consume the proper vitamins and, and you must eat the proper uh, uh, vegetables and fruits and nuts and berries and seeds and lemons and garlic and onions and your G-bombs. Don't forget your G-bombs. All these things are... Uh, immune system builders, ladies and gentlemen, that will keep your immune system strong and healthy so it will keep this virus at bay. But then in the event that you test positive, you'll be able to eliminate it and get rid of it with little to no medication. As you guys know, Teddy G loves you. Everybody here at the station loves you. And loving you guys is our food. And as you know, Teddy G and his staff is hungry each and every single day. Until I talk to you guys again, I bid you peace, love, and soul.